Uh, lesson today, this is a special lesson. We, we're going through the Gospel of John. Once in a while, we'll, we'll take a look at some topical lessons, some topical material. And this is a lesson that's very important to me personally. Uh, when I was in my late 20s, which is now a long time ago, uh, when I first uh, was getting serious about studying the Bible, following Jesus, and reevaluating everything in life, I took a, an Old Testament survey class which had a big impact on me in many ways. And um, one of the things that had the biggest impact was a survey class that we covered all the Old Testament. One of the things that had the biggest impact on me, and I think it, the class had an impact on, the material had a big impact on Allison as well. And uh, it was the story that Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 was he, he explains that the whole story of the Exodus meaning the time that the, the Jews left Egypt and were wandering in the wilderness and heading into the promised land. Paul says that all that is a foreshadowing of the, the, the time of, of the Jews uh, heading, heading out of Egypt to the promised land, foreshadowing the Christian life. So, uh, and he explains that Paul explains the elements of it. So I thought, wow, this is really cool. This is an allegory that's baked into the text of the Old Testament story. This is actually extremely relevant for Christians. And this inspired me and encouraged me to decide to devote a significant part of my life to studying the Old Testament because I thought this is really helpful. The other thing is uh, I've been a Christian now uh, uh, for, I don't know, 30, 40 years, something like that, uh, I would say. And uh, uh, over that time, there have been many challenges and many trials and temptations, but one of the things that really helped me to stay on the path over the long haul was some of the lessons that are contained in, in what we're going to learn today. So this is a very practical lesson. has it had an impact on my own spiritual life and decisions I made instead of the Old Testament. Um, so, And I noticed that most people, most Christian preachers and teachers will focus on the New Testament, but uh, that left me the other three quarters of the Bible to focus on. I, feel, I thought, thought I could be more help to the church if I focus on the things that are neglected, and this will be really helpful. So uh, when I, I decided as, as a young man I wanted to do something spiritually significant with my life, so I decided to devote myself, set in the Old Testament, and this was, this was one of the things that really got me on the road. Uh, another part of the story behind this is that a few years ago, I shared this with my good friend, Chris Reardon. Chris lives out in Chicago, and I explained this story to Chris, and he was absolutely floored. No one had ever explained that to him before. And so he was so excited about this that he hired a graphic, a graphic artist to draw up a picture, a really professional quality map of the Exodus, the Exodus story. Because he wanted to have this done really well, and he put all we put all the titles in there and things like that. And then I even saw a copy of this, uh, which which Dave is nodding his head too. I, I saw a copy of this uh, with uh, in a language that I totally didn't understand, which I'm assuming is in is in Farsi. So this is now this map is going out to other parts of the world too, in the Middle East. And Chris refers to this lesson as the Exodus map, capital T capital E, capital M. So Chris talks about the Exodus map all the time. And he has been persistently encouraging me, Chuck, please write down all the points of this lesson and all the, all the parallels and the foreshadowing. 
because this is this is a huge thing. So as I was pulling that together, uh, it really uh, it really reminded me how much how rich this story is and how many details and. And while we've touched on it a few times in our lessons here, particularly going through 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I really never really fleshed out the whole story. So I wanted to take the time to do that. So this the title lesson is The Exodus Map, A Parable of the Christian Life. Now you may think, well, wait a minute. Exodus, that's in the Old Testament. Parables, those are in the New Testament. You're mixing and matching here, Chuck. What's going on? Well, the Exodus is not just a book in the Bible, but the Exodus is the story of the departure of the, the Jews from Egypt. And the story of the Exodus is, is their whole journey, which, which just begins in the book of Exodus, but only finishes when they cross over to the Promised Land in the, in the first chapters of the book of Joshua. So that's the whole story is the Exodus journey. I remember, and Allison may remember this too, um, uh, I was, uh, 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 long story, but I ended up in a hospital in Athens, Greece. I got flown into a hospital in Athens, Greece uh, with, uh, uh, with a severe kidney stone issue um, from where I was coming from. And uh, so I was in the hospital bed and I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the next step to happen in the whole, the whole business. And I look out the window of the hospital down onto the parking lot below. And although I didn't know any Greek particularly, at least I knew what the Greek letters were, and I saw painted on the pavement the word Exodus with an arrow pointing to the exit, the exit of the parking lot. So I thought... Oh, so that's what Exodus means. Exodus means the way out, which is exactly what it was. So that's so it was it clicked with me. Oh, Exodus is a common word. It just means exit. It means the way out. Let's get out of here. Okay. So so that's what it is. The story of the Exodus. The Exodus is that story, and and you know the parable of the Christian life. We think of parables as what we think of. Well, those are those little stories that Jesus told. Those are the parables. They're in the New Testament. And if I ask most people, where's the first place in the Bible that it talks about parables? Most people would say, oh, that's easy. It's Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus first starts talking about parables. In Matthew 13, 3, it says, Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. So that's the first parable that Jesus tells the Gospel of Matthew is the parable of the sower. And then he goes on and explains that. Now, why did Jesus speak in parables? Jesus gives the reason why he spoke in parables by pointing to two passages in the Old Testament. The one we're more familiar with generally is the one in Isaiah 6. This is where Isaiah is in the throne room of God. He says, God says, who are we going to send out? He says, here am I, send me. And, uh, and Jesus quotes in, in Matthew chapter 13, in verse 13, he says, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 6 and verse, uh, verse 10. So that's one reason Jesus speaks to the people in parables. <coughs> But there is another reason that Jesus speaks to the people in parables, and we're not as familiar with this one. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. And this is actually going to tie into our story here. 
So why did Jesus speak in parables? And it gives an appreciation for what, what a parable is. Matthew chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying... I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So he's quoting from the Old Testament. And if you check your your footnotes in your Bibles, it will say, in most Bibles it will say, that's in Psalm 78, verse 2. Or if if you have an, uh, an Orthodox Bible based on the Septuagint, it'll be 77. So let's turn there. Let's turn to the passage that Jesus is quoting from. And when he says, I will open my mouth in parables, this is an exact quotation from the, the, uh, the Septuagint there, the, the first, first verse, first part of the verse. So let's read what it says, going back there. Psalm 78, verses 1 and 2. And it says, uh, the, the intro says, concerning understanding for a Asaph. Give heed, O my people, to my law. Incline your ear to the words of my mouth. I shall open my mouth in parables. I shall speak of things hidden from of old. What things we heard, these we also knew, and our fathers described them to us. So, Jesus says, that's why I speak to the people in parables. So, the question of where does parable first show up in the Bible? Well, Jesus is pulling the word parable out of the Old Testament here. So obviously there are places in the Old Testament where parables are discussed uh, that didn't start in the New Testament. And so it says, I will open my mouth in parables. Now, now I'm being a curious person. I wonder, well, what else is in that psalm? Could there be something else that might be of interest in this psalm? So I just keep, keep right on reading the psalm. It's a, a lengthy psalm. I encourage you to read it on your own, but I noticed two things in the psalm jumped out at me. It's a retelling of Jewish history, huge focus on the Exodus story, recounting all the details of the Exodus story. First of all, it's like most of the rest of the psalm is a recounting of the whole Exodus story. From It talks about the, uh, the plagues in Egypt and God delivering the people and everything else. So, Huge focus on the Exodus story, and then it also talks about David. And, uh, of course, David is extremely uh, significant in foreshadowing Christ, that uh, Jesus is the son of David. And I thought, well, that's interesting. In the beginning, he says, I'll open my mouth in parables and speak of things hidden from of old. Jesus says from the foundation of the world. Then he talks about the Exodus. And I'm thinking, I wonder if that first statement is completely disconnected from everything else that follows, or when he says, I will open my mouth in parables, is he about to unleash a great parable to us that we need to pay attention to? And I thought, maybe, just maybe the second one is true. And then when I read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it's exactly what's happening there. That's exactly what Paul explains. The whole story of the Exodus is not only a true story, 
but that there is meaning that is hidden in this story, just as Asaph explained it here in Psalm 78. Uh, I'll share with you a story. Uh, it seems to me this makes sense, and there's one early Christian writer who talks about this as well. And I'll share with this because I think it's an interesting story. Uh, there was a man named Kelsus who was a Greek philosopher who lived around the year, lived and wrote around the year 170 AD. So he's second century, Greek philosopher, couldn't stand the Christians. Didn't like the early Christians, didn't like the Bible, didn't like the Jews, and he wrote basically out to attack them and to criticize them. And many years later, Origen, there's this work that's outstanding in the ancient world. Many years later, Origen says, somebody needs to take this guy on and take apart his, his accusation against the Christians. Someone needs to stand up and, and provide an answer presenting the Christian response to this. Origen wrote a work called Against Celsus around the year 248. So this is many years after Celsus wrote his work, but Origen wants to defend the Christians against the attack. One of the charges that Celsus made was the scriptures of the Christians and the Jews are inferior works. They don't contain any deep spiritual truths in them. They're just a bunch of stories, basically. And Origen says he takes that, that, uh, <coughs> he takes that charge against the word of God and he responds. He says, that's completely not true, that there's no deep spiritual truths that are hidden, that there's nothing, there's no allegorical truth contained in there. And he quotes from Psalm 119, verse 8, in his defense. One of the things he says is, after all, it says right in the Psalms, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. That's Psalm 119, verse 18. I think it's a, it's a, a great prayer that we all should be praying when we open up the word of God, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things. It says, obviously, there are things hidden in there. We need to have our eyes opened up so that we can understand the truths that are contained in there. Because he's, obviously, there are plenty of people who read the scriptures but will not understand the figurative meaning that's behind there, that's contained there. Then Origen gives three examples. And we're, we should be familiar with those examples. The first example that he gives, uh, well, I'll, I'll give a, a quote from Origen. He says, if Celsus had read the scriptures with an impartial spirit, he would not have said our writings are incapable of admitting an allegorical meaning. For from the prophetic scriptures in which historical events are recorded, it's possible to be convinced that the historical portions also were written with an allegorical purpose and were most skillfully adapted not only to the multitude of the simpler believers, but also the few who are able or willing to investigate matters in an intelligent spirit. So he says, okay, you can read it and get the surface meaning, but for those who want to dig deeper, there's a lot more contained in there in the scriptures. And then he gives a few examples. One of them he says, he points to the Apostle Paul who says, he quotes and, uh, and says, it's written in the law, you shall not muzzle the mouth of the oxen that treads out the grain. Does God, take care, does God care for oxen? 
Or does he say it all together for our sakes? That's, he's quoting 1 Corinthians 9, verses 9 and 10. So he's taking from Deuteronomy 25. Paul's taking a, a statement that says, don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. He says, look, there's a spiritual, there's a deeper significance in the story. That means that those who are laboring in the church should be able to, you know, the, the ox, you let him munch a little bit of the grain while he's doing the hard work. So he's saying that's a lesson for us. So Origen gives that as one example one that we're familiar with. There's, see, there is deep allegorical truth. Another one he gives, one we're very familiar with, this is from Ephesians 5, he points to Paul again. He says, in another passage, Paul says, it's written, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So Paul is saying, he goes back to Genesis 2.24, the man and wife will be joined and become one flesh. He says this is an allegory of the relationship between Christ and the church. There's a deep spiritual truth contained in that passage. There's another level. And then he says, which ties into what we're going to be talking about the rest of this lesson, and Origen says again in another place, he says, we know that all our fathers were under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Then explaining the history related to the manna and that referred to the miraculous issue of water from the rock, he continues as follows. And they did all eat the same spiritual food and all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. And then, and then Origen continues, Asaph, moreover, who in showing the histories of Exodus numbers to be full of difficulties and parables, begins in the following manner as recorded in the book of Psalms, where he's about to make mention of these things. And Asaph says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. So there he is. This is exactly Origen saying, Asaph told us right there, and then Paul explained it, that contained in the story of the Exodus are deeper spiritual truths for our benefit. So the Holy Spirit has indeed hidden great spiritual truths and allegories in the Scripture and may we take Origen's words to heart to be intelligent readers who seek to dig them out and not just reading on the surface. So I want to give you a general outline of the Exodus map. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is explained at least three places in the New Testament. The most detailed place is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in verses 10 to 13. I'm going to read it starting in chapter 9 and verse 24. Just so we get the context of what Paul is talking about and why he's bringing this up. 1 Corinthians 9 starting in verse 24. Do you not know, this, and this is written to Christians, do you not know that those who run a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others I myself 
should be disqualified. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. All our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, these people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these happened to them as examples and were written for our admonition upon the end upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you be, to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape so you may be able to bear it. So let's, let's dig in to, to this. First of all, what's the point that he... I want to look at what's the point Paul's making, and then how is he making the point? The point that he's making is we Christians need to persevere when we're being tempted. That's the point. Don't become the, like those who fell in the desert. They all were baptized. They all ate the spiritual food and they drank the spiritual drink, but their bodies fell in the wilderness because they got involved in sin. She so says, don't follow that bad example. This is provided, the story is written down for our benefit. It's, it's for our admit, ad, admonition. He's saying, don't get complacent. Don't think you have it made just because you've been baptized and you're part of the church and you're drinking from Christ. They were all doing that, but they didn't make it. So that's the point that he's making is we need to persevere spiritually and not follow in, in, the, in those sins. How does he make the point? He makes the point by looking back at the Exodus story. And he, he basically maps out a large part of the story here. And each element of the story corresponds to something else. <clears throat> For example, the crossing of the Red Sea, Paul equates to baptism. He said they were all baptized in Moses. There's the, they're walking through the Red Sea. There's a wall of water on either side. And it says they're ba baptized in the cloud and the sea. Jesus says, John 3, verses 3 to 5, you must be born again of water and the Spirit. So obviously that's, that's a, a, an allusion to that. It says that they drank from the rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. They ate the spiritual food. They drank from the spiritual drink. <clears throat> so the point that he's making is the Israelites traveling through the wilderness correspond to the church today. They're God's people who are in the world. They haven't made it to the promised land yet, and they're through a time of testing. Paul is making the point here, don't fall into the four sins that caused them to die in the desert. This is for our benefit. Don't get involved in idolatry. 
Don't get involved in sexual immorality. 23,000 died in, a day, in one day to teach us a lesson. Don't test the Lord and don't complain or murmur, which may, we may not think is that big of a deal, but he says that they fell in the desert. It's a stiff warning if we know the story out of 600,000 adult males who were baptized, two made it into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. That could be a little discouraging. Thinking, I'm not one of the top two out of 600,000, so I might as well just give up right now. But Paul says, no. The point is, when you're tempted, God will provide the way of escape. So every single one of you Christians can make it, but you can't have a complacent attitude. God will not, God's faithful. God always keeps his promises. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. So you can make it. Um, so that's the point that he's making. He's making the point by explaining the elements in the story all correspond to things in, in, our, in our own journey. Let's turn to, to Jude. <clears throat> Jude makes a short passing reference, but there's uh, really some powerful ap applications here as well. This is a, a passage we're probably less familiar with. Jude is dealing with false teaching and heresy coming into the church. Let's read Jude. There's no chapters in Jude, so it's just verses 1 to 5 we're going to read. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5, But I want to remind you, Though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So Paul obviously is reading from the same map. I mean, Jude is reading from the same map that Paul was. And he says, you all once knew this. So he was, he's reminding them of something that they once knew as well. And very interesting the way this is worded in verse 5. He says, The Lord having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, then he destroyed them. Now, question. If God saved the people out of the land of Egypt, how can they end up being destroyed? I thought God saved them. Were they really saved? Were they really saved? Yes, it says here, God saved the people out of Egypt. But also, were they really destroyed? Yes, God destroyed the people who he already saved out of Egypt. How on earth can people teach once saved, always saved, that you can't be saved and lose your salvation? When I pin people down, I say, well, wait a minute, this person was saved, but then they totally left the Lord and they got involved in all these horrible sins. And they'll say, 
the typical response that I get is, well, I guess they weren't really saved in the first place. No, you can be saved. This is the lesson. Those people were saved according to Jude, but then they were destroyed. So you can be saved and you can lose your salvation. And this is the same thing that Paul was saying. They were all baptized. They ate the spiritual food. They were drinking from Christ. These people are obviously Christians, but they didn't make it to the promised land. So, obviously, someone who teaches once saved, always saved, doesn't understand basic foundational things in the Word of God. Now, the other thing is, he says that he saved them out of Egypt. Now, Paul doesn't specifically mention Egypt in his exposition of the story. Jude does. What do you think Egypt represents? Egypt is the land that they were in before they were baptized. And it says they were saved out of Egypt. I mean, put the pieces together. It seems obvious to me Egypt represents the old sinful life before someone's baptized into Christ. It was a land of slavery under the rule of a cruel king who didn't want to let them go. Next question. We figured out who, what Egypt is. Who is Pharaoh in this story? Who is the cruel king who doesn't want to let them go? And I'll give you a hint. The story of Pharaoh begins in Exodus where he is given the order to murder thousands of baby boys who were born to the Jew, born to the Jews. So he's a murderer from the beginning. He's also a liar. When God sends the plagues on the people, Pharaoh says, look, just, just take the plague away. I'll let, the, I'll let you guys go. I'll let you go into the wilderness. The, uh, Moses prays the plague is taken away, and what does Pharaoh do? He doesn't let the people go. He's a liar. He's a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar. He is the ruler of the kingdom of darkness, the ninth plague. God shuts out the lights in Egypt. For three days there is darkness over the land. And there is light where God's people are, but the kingdom of Egypt is in darkness. He is the ruler of the kingdom of darkness. He is the slave owner. Obviously, Pharaoh represents Satan in this allegory. It seems quite obvious to me. Cyprian, a bishop of Carthage in North Africa, writing around the year 258, talks about the significance of how Pharaoh's forces are destroyed by God. They're not destroyed by the ten plagues. The firstborn of each family is destroyed, but the forces, the army of Pharaoh, is only destroyed by one thing. Cyprian writing, he says, The obstinate wickedness of the devil prevails even up to the saving water, but that in baptism it loses all the poison." Of his wickedness. An instance of this we see in the king Pharaoh, who having struggled long and delayed in his perfidy, could resist and prevail until he came to the water. But when he had come there, he was both conquered and destroyed. And that sea was a sacrament of baptism, the blessed apostle declares, Brethren, I would not have you ignorant that our fathers were all under the cloud, then they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized in Moses in the cloud and the sea. And he added, saying, Now these things were for our example. 
continuing further down, he's talking about the devil and the wicked spirits who are with him, the, the demonic forces and the wicked angels. And he says, however, when they came to the water of salvation and to the sanctification of baptism, we ought to know and trust that there the devil is beaten down. And the man dedicated to God is set free by the divine mercy. For as scorpions and serpents which prevail on dry ground, and when cast into water cannot prevail or retain their venom, so also the wicked spirits which are called scorpions and serpents, yet are trodden underfoot by us, by the power given by the Lord, cannot remain any longer in the body of a man in whom, baptized and sanctified, the Holy Spirit is beginning to dwell. That's from uh, the Epistles of Cyprian in Anastasian Fathers, Volume 5, page 402. So, we take another look at Pharaoh and his army and how they are destroyed in this story. The third place that the, that the Exodus map is referred to in the, in the New Testament, in addition to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and Jude verse 5, is in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. I'm going to read from there a little bit. The introduction, Hebrews is all about persevering in the faith. What's it going to take to make it to the end? Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, I'm going to read from there. Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you, be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily, while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. That's what it's going to take. To be partakers of Christ, we have to hold the confidence we had at the beginning all the way to the end of our lives. So this is the focus of the book of Hebrews. And then he turns to the story of the wilderness to back up what he's saying here, the significance of why we have to persevere all the way to the end. Starting at verse 16, Hebrews 3, verse 16, it says, For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? We see they were, could not enter because of unbelief. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have fallen short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. The faith that he's talking about here says the gospel was preached to them. This story is basically the gospel. What happened in the story of the Exodus. It's a, it's a telling and allegorical form of the whole gospel. As they didn't combine it with faith, the faith that saves is a faith that perseveres all the way to the end. And the admonition for us coming out of this story from the Exodus, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So it's a call to be diligent, to be vigilant, not to slack off just because you're, you're, uh, you're, you're in the church. 
want to map out the stations. When I was growing up in the Catholic Church, there was something around Easter they called the Stations of the Cross. It was basically meditations on, on uh, things that happened during the Passion Week. Now, some from Catholic backgrounds, I see some smiles because you remember that. I actually like that. It was a, it was a time of meditating on different, uh, different uh, things that took place in historical sequence in the Gospels. So I've broken down the Exodus journey into ten stations here. And I want to talk about that. Let's talk about, first of all, the, in this Exodus story itself, and then the significance of it. The first station is the people are found at the beginning of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 1. They're in slavery, under the rule of an oppressive king who's a murderer and a liar and who refuses to let them go, who will not give them their freedom. That's the first station. The second station, God chooses one man to deliver his people. The third station, that man performs miraculous signs and wonders. The first of the ten plagues is changing the water to blood, even in the stone jars. And then the ninth of the ten plagues, the last one before the Passover lamb, is that the, the, the lights are turned off. There was three days and three nights of darkness on the land. So it starts with changing water and ends with darkness, the miraculous signs. The fourth station, the Passover lamb is slain, and the people are protected from the destroyer by the blood of the lamb, the lamb that was chosen without defect, that was slaughtered at the time of the Passover. And... Uh, uh, none of its bones were to be broken. And a, a, a memorial meal thereafter was celebrated to commemorate this event. Station number five. After the Passover lamb is killed, God says, get rid of all the yeast. For the next seven days, anyone who has yeast in the house is going to be tossed out of the community. He's going to be ejected. You must get rid of all the yeast. That's the fifth station. The sixth station. After the Passover lamb is slain, the pillar of cloud and fire appears and leads the people out of Egypt, leading them to the edge of the water, and then continuing leading them through, uh, as they pass through the water, continuing to lead them in the wilderness all the way until they get to the promised land. Station 7, crossing the, out of the land of, of slavery going through the water, which Paul refers to as baptism. The people are delivered from the land of slavery, and the army of the wicked king is destroyed and drowned by the water. Station number eight, the people are in the wilderness. They're not in the promised land yet. God provides special food and drink to sustain his people in the wilderness. Station number nine, a time of testing in the wilderness. At one point, the leader departs to be with the Lord. And while he's gone, the people become restless. They wonder if he's ever going to come back again. And they turn to all kinds of sin. They go back to the old way of life. Even the top religious leaders get corrupted. Some of the people are bored. And they, they, their flesh cries out for the things that they enjoyed back in the land of Egypt. Their appetite's getting the better of them. It's saying, well, we had, we had such, we, our flesh enjoyed such pleasure in Egypt. We're sick of this. We're sick and bored 
of this manna. Let's go back to Egypt. They want to go back to indulge their appetites. Many people fall into sin and never make it to the promised land from idolatry, from sexual immorality, testing the Lord and complaining about everything. They complain about the food that's provided by God. They complain about their leaders. They complain about the plan to take over the promised land. They complain about who Moses married. They're complaining about everything. They're ungrateful. And then station number 10, a righteous few who began the journey crossing out of Egypt make it to the goal, the promised land, the end of the journey. Ten stations, and those who are familiar with the New Testament story realize these stations, every single one of them is fulfilled in the story of Christ and our salvation, the kingdom of God. Station number one, we're starting off in slavery. Jesus says everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Satan is a murderer and a, and a robber. I'm going to put the cross-references in, in, the, in the notes for this lesson. There's so many I couldn't possibly mention them all. Station number two, God chooses one man to deliver his people. That's Jesus. And you look at the story of Moses, the life of Moses. All the other baby boys are, are killed by a wicked king. He, he survives. He has to leave the land and comes back after the wicked king is killed. Uh, he, all the miracles he performs, Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, Peter explains in, in Acts chapter 3 that Moses was foreshadowing Jesus in so many ways, that Jesus was the prophet just like Moses, if we, it was, we've explained in another lesson. So God chooses one man to be the savior and deliverer of his people. The miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus' first miracle, Moses was changing the water into blood, Jesus changing the water into wine. Last miracle before Jesus died is that there's three hours of darkness on the land. The last miracle before the Passover slain, lamb is slain is three days of darkness on the land. The Passover lamb is slain. Obvious significance of that and the, the memorial meal, eating the blood, of the, eating the, the flesh of the lamb. The people must get rid of the yeast. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. What does it mean to get rid of the yeast? It means to repent. Turn away from your sin. Get it all out of your life. <clears throat> and anyone who doesn't is going to be cut off from the people. And then after the Passover lamb is slain, the cloud leads the people to the water. After Jesus died on the cross in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down on the day of Pentecost, leading the people to Peter, who tells them, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit points the way, leads the people to the water, just as it was in this story. After the people cross, after the people are all baptized, the wicked king is destroyed in Acts 22:16. It talks about what happens in baptism. And Ananias tells Paul, now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away. That in Romans chapter 6, it talks about a death takes place in baptism, just like it did in the story of the Exodus. It's a death to the old way of life and a, and, and a spiritual rebirth. After the people pass through the water, they are, this is basically the church. They haven't made it to the promised land yet. And even in, in, in Deuteronomy, 
Uh, it talks about, I think it's uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10. In, in, the, in the Old Testament, of the, the Greek Old Testament that the apostles quote from, it talks about the church, the ecclesia. It's the same word that's used that Jesus used, on this rock I'll build my church. It's referred to as the church. Uh, in, in the Old Testament even, of the ecclesia, the called out assembly. Uh, Acts chapter 7, Stephen makes the same point. This is the church, and that's exactly what it's called. Uh, the time of testing in the wilderness, that's where we are, folks. This is exactly where we are right now. We've been baptized. We're eating a spiritual food and spiritual drink. This is no time to be complacent. We are being tested. We can't be looking back. Deuteronomy chapter 17 they're warned. We said, when you have a king, no matter what you do, don't ever go back to Egypt. Don't go back to Egypt to get horses. What's the big deal about going back to Egypt? God's trying to tell us a lesson. We've been redeemed from slavery. Don't ever go back there. Don't look back longingly on the way that God, that our flesh was gratified by the things that we were doing in the old way of life. Don't do that. We get bored with what God is giving us right now and longingly want to go back there. And if our leader, if our Savior is taking a while to come back down from the mountain, that's okay. This is not a time to start making golden caps and getting involved in pagan revelry. Amen. So, the time of testing. Don't get involved in idolatry. It says greed is a form of idolatry in the New Testament. Don't get involved in any form of sexual immorality. Don't test the Lord and don't complain about everything. Do everything without complaining. We need to be grateful people. And then the last station, the promised land. And we should all know what that is. The promised land is the goal. The goal wasn't to have a nice life in the desert, the land of the snakes and scorpions. The goal is to get out of the desert and make it into the promised land and do whatever it takes to get there. Whatever we're facing right now is light and momentary afflictions. That's what it is. That's all it is. We are, we are holding on. We're hanging in there to make it into the promised land. <clears throat> Takeaways for us. Now, something I noticed this time in studying this that I never really noticed before, I mentioned 10 stations. I gave them in the chronological order in which they appear in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I gave, I gave that in the chronological order, it appears. These are ten different events, and I laid them out in chronological order. It just so happens that these events exactly line up in chronological order with God's plan to save us. Slavery, the Savior, the miracles, the Passover lamb slain, baptism, the Holy Spirit, the spiritual food and drink, the time of testing, the promised land, all of those things were laid out specifically, carved into the rock of the Old Testament 1,400 years before Jesus is born. Two possibilities. Either this is a wild coincidence, okay? And for those with a technical bent here, the likelihood of 10 events, random events, occurring in exact chronological order with no design is 10 factorial, and you can do the math and see how likely that is. 
for this to happen. I think it's like one in three million. Just forget it. This is not, this is not, the, the, the likelihood of this happening, either it happened by coincidence or it's planned by God. Each one of these miracles is amazing, but that they all lined up perfectly, 10 in a row, 10 for 10, is staggering to me. So those who are skeptics, this should be enough to convince any reasonable, logical person. Satan is our enemy. He's always lying and killing. He's not our friend. Be aware of all times and don't ever go back to Egypt. Never, ever go back to Egypt. Another lesson, now that the Passover lamb has been slain, we need to repent and get rid of all the yeast in our lives. That's the point that Paul was making when he found sexual immorality in the church. Another point here, which may be obvious to us, but a lot of people haven't yet gotten the memo, baptism is the one and only way out of the land of slavery. It's the only way that we can be delivered. It's the only way that Satan's forces can be destroyed. That's the only way out. The Spirit led them to the edge of the water, and then God parted the Red Sea. He did it for our benefit to teach us that's the only way to be saved. This wasn't invented by the churches of Christ. This is the faith once for all entrusted to the saints. There's only one way to be saved, and it involves baptism. The other thing, once saved, always saved, is obviously ridiculous. It's complete false teaching. It's a diabolical false teaching. It's doing exactly the opposite of what Paul said we should do. And the writer, the writer of Hebrews said that we should do, and the Jews said we should do, warning us, no. You can't be complacent. You must be vigilant. You must be focused like someone who's, who's running to win the race. And we're in the wilderness here, okay? This is the land of snakes and scorpions. This isn't our home. We don't belong here. We need to live like that. We need to act like that. Now, the likelihood of any of my Catholic friends listening to this message is pretty remote, but I'll throw one out here because I've been watching what's going on with the Catholic Church. And, and the Catholics would have no problem with anything that we have discussed so far in this lesson. But one thing that was a glaring thing that I noticed, I, I'm looking at, at the Catholic Church today and, and, and the, the tremendous devastation that's going on in, in the Catholic Church. My heart goes out to, to, to those people. But so many people I see that have good hearts and they're serious about let's, we need to clean house, we need to get the <coughs> sin out. And then they close off by saying, and let's all pray the rosary to Mary, okay? The mother of the Savior shows up in the beginning of the story in Exodus chapter 1, but that's about it. She doesn't bail them out. The mother of Moses doesn't bail them out when they get in trouble in the wilderness. There's one mediator between God and man. He's the one who went up to talk to God, and he brought the message of God down, Okay? We don't have another mediator. There's not, there's not a, there's not, the mother of God is not, or mother, uh, sorry, the mother of the Messiah is not going to be getting us out of trouble. Okay, I was raised Catholic. I said the rosary as a kid. You say the Our Father once and the Hail Mary ten times. There's something, something seriously not right with that, okay? Uh, Mary doesn't appear in the wilderness here. 
So, so enough about that. We have one mediator. We don't need another one. Another lesson here, church isn't going to be perfect. When people see problems in the church, many people bail. They say, I see too much sin here. I see too many problems here. I see corrupt leaders here. Therefore, God must not be true. Well, Aaron is making the golden calf while Moses is away. Hello. Okay, this stuff happened to teach us a lesson. Don't lose, don't freak out if you see immorality in the church or if you see financial corruption in the church. I mean, God help us. I hope that's not going on here. But we don't lose our faith because these things are happening. We'd be like Joshua and Caleb is that we keep our eye on the prize and be focused on that. So church isn't going to be perfect, okay? We can't do such a good job of screening who gets baptized or screening who comes into the Lord's Supper. There's going to be people who get baptized that won't make it. There's going to be people taking the Lord's Supper who won't make it. The angels out of the net will cast the, will sort out the good, the good fish from the bad ones. We can't do that. That's not our job. Our job is to admonish one another, to encourage one another. The other thing, our goal is heaven. Our goal is not the wilderness. Our goal is not to find a nice, comfy vacation spot in the desert. It's to get out of the desert and make it to the promised land and help as many others make it as possible. We can't take security just for, just for the fact that we've been baptized and we're traveling with the pack. That wasn't good enough. That's not going to be good enough. So our goal is heaven. That has to be where our heart is, our anchor is. That's what we're focused on. And then the things in this life will seem as light momentary afflictions. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I'm going away. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. We have to be looking for that place. He says, there's plenty of room in my father's house. There are many mansions. And Thomas says, well, you know, how are we going to get there? He says, I am the way. He is the way to a place, to a destination. And the destination is heaven. That's it. We have to keep our eye on the prize. It's heaven. It's the promised land. It's not this life. That's not what it's about. And uh, God help us if we, if we try to, to, to sell Christians, bring people into the kingdom of God by telling them what a wonderful time they can have here in the desert. Okay, that's not what it's about. It's to get out of here. Get out of the desert and make it all the way to the promised land. So Jesus is the way. He is the way to the promised land. And we have to follow him and do everything he says. I'm going to close... From Philippians chapter 3. Then read verses 12 to 14. I'll start verse 7 actually. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ, yet in Indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found of him not having my own righteousness which is from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
and the fellowship of the sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained, or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The goal is the promised land. The goal is heaven. And that's, we have to make it there, and we have to be able to do whatever it takes to make it. Amen.